All right, well, let's take God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10, as you turn there in the Word of God, excuse me, chapter 11. We finished chapter 10, so we find ourselves in chapter 11. We've been through the first nine plagues. If you remember, there are three sets of plagues. Uh, the first one where the water was turned to blood. Remember, Moses was instructed to meet Pharaoh during his uh, morning routine worship. And uh, before Pharaoh, the water was turned to blood. Uh, that lasted for uh, seven days. After that, uh, Moses was instructed then to go to Pharaoh with a warning about the frogs. Uh, he asked Pharaoh to let the people go or else God would send the plague of frogs, and Pharaoh would not let the people go, so God sent the frogs. And uh, then God sends the third plague without warning. That was the dust becoming lice on the body of men. And so that is the first set of plagues. And then the pattern follows the same exact way. Plague four, Moses was instructed again to go to Pharaoh during his morning worship. Uh, you have the swarms of flies, plague five, the livestock dies. Moses was again instructed to go to Pharaoh with a warning that if he did not let the people go, God would send the plague. And the sixth plague was sent again without warning, uh, closing the second set of plagues. And then the third set of three plagues begins with the seventh plague when the hell destroys uh, and kills uh, the crops and any servant or beast that was outside Again, Moses at that time was instructed to meet Pharaoh during morning worship. The eighth plague, we see the locusts basically devour anything that's left that the hail did not destroy. And Moses there was instructed to go to Pharaoh and give him a warning that if he did not let the people go, that God would send the locusts. And then the ninth plague, as it closes the third group of three plagues, we see that this plague came without warning where there was, um, as I described, a heavy and paralyzing darkness that came over the land of Egypt. And noted, remember what we noted is that uh, there was no light in the house of the Egyptians, but there was light in the house of the children of Israel. And so we come now to Exodus chapter 11. And in Exodus chapter 11... We have uh, the stage that is being set for the last plague. So the last plague doesn't come till much later. There's kind of a, uh, at least in our text, there is a gap between the, th the, the first nine plagues and the last plague. Uh, in chapter 12, the Passover is going to be instituted. And by the way, this is going to be very significant and I'm going to ask the Lord to help me with that because this particular event in Exodus chapter 12 is going to be repeated all throughout the Scriptures and is, is going to be likened to Christ in the New Testament and a very important passage. But this sets the stage for chapter 12 and the last plague, but it is also a summary statement. Uh, you will find those in the opening verses of chapter 11 and in the closing verses of chapter 11. As I mentioned when we come from chapter 10 through chapter 11, Moses is still in the presence of Pharaoh. I believe that, and I gave some explanations last week to show here that Moses does not leave and come back. I believe that Moses has been there all along, and he gives Pharaoh a warning of the last plague that is going to come. And so we begin, notice, in Exodus 11, verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter. It's just 10 verses. We'll read the chapter. The Bible says in Exodus 11, verse 1, and the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go hence. And when he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord about midnight, Will I go out into the midst of Egypt? 
and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto, unto me, and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his hand, land. I want to bring your attention here to verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, Yet I will bring one plague more. And so I want to preach this evening on there is one more plague coming. There is one more plague coming. As we uh, begin here and we look at our text here in Exodus chapter 11 here, we see that God uh, tells Moses that there is going to be uh, one more plague. And as we look at the first verse, it is interesting because thus far, as I've already mentioned, there's been nine plagues that have happened uh, successively. And we see here that this is a time almost like a pause announcing the last plague and in the very first verse, there is something that happens in the wording. If you notice, as we look throughout the record of the plagues, every time that Moses or Aaron come to Pharaoh, they said, God says, let my people go that they may serve me. And we have this idea of the word, let my people go. The idea of the, the, the language, let my people go, almost indicates that Pharaoh should allow the people to go despite the fact that he does not want them to go. You have to let them go. You have to make a choice that goes, that goes against your desire. Let the people go. But in the very first verse here, we see here that when the Lord is instructed, when the Lord instructs Moses to, about this last plague, he says to Moses that this one plague is going to come upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt afterward, after this last plague that's going to come, he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Now, it's interesting here because if you remember, when God called Moses early on before any plagues were sent of God, God did not tell Moses that there would be ten plagues. He told Moses, I'm going to send you and you're going to give Pharaoh word to let the people go. And he is not going to listen. He is going to reject. He is not going to let the people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and uh, his heart was hardened. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And as we've read that over the last uh, few chapters. And so we see here this, the, the idea of letting the people go has been repeated, but God now finally comes to Moses and says, after this one, he's going to let you go. And that's the first time that Moses is aware of that. It's the first time that he's aware it's going to take ten plagues for Pharaoh to let the people go. But you notice here the word let the people go in Exodus chapter 11 verse 1. But the very last part, he says, when he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out, hence, altogether. Now, the word let, as I mentioned, indicates that Pharaoh would basically be granting a request by, at the same time, being opposed to the decision to let the people go. Uh, if you remember early on, uh, that's what was asked. Let the people go. And, and Pharaoh had said to Moses, I don't know the Lord. 
Neither will I obey his voice, neither will I let the children of Israel go. And so the idea of letting is Pharaoh has to make a decision that goes against his desire or the choice that he wants to make. And ultimately, that's what he doesn't like. And by the way, sometimes we may not like uh, to make choices. Or sometimes we do things that we don't necessarily like to do, but we must do them because they're the right thing to do. But then we find the word thrust at the end of verse 1. He shall surely, when God is done with this last plague, Pharaoh is not going to be in a position when he's going to, where he's going to let the people go. What's going to happen after the tenth plague is he's going to thrust you out altogether. And so the word thrust indicates that Pharaoh would get to the place where he would become proactive in driving the people out himself of his own choice and of his own volition. The expression here, thrust out, means to drive out, to expel, to drive away. And so thus far in all of the plagues, we've seen this, let my people go. And remember the request was what? For the children of Israel to go a three days journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifice unto the Lord. And the plan, by the way, was always to come back. Now how do we know that? Well, you remember when Pharaoh was making the compromises? The first compromise, he says, well, uh, how about you offer sacrifices in the land? Don't go a three days journey. And Moses says, no, we must obey the Lord and go out. Then you remember the second compromise. He says, well, uh, how about you let the, uh, the men go, but the women and the children have to stay behind. Why? Because the plan was to come back. And finally, the last compromise in this last play, Pharaoh said, well, I'll let all of you go out. You can take the children and the women but keep the livestock and the animals here. And Moses says, no, we must take everything. So the plan in the first nine plagues was always to let the people go temporarily and for them eventually, when they were done in the wilderness, to come back to allow them to do something that Pharaoh didn't want them to do. But here, God, by the time He is done with the last plague... Pharaoh is not going to be in the position where he is going to allow the children of Israel to do something that he doesn't want them to do. He is going to get to the place where he himself is not going to be forced by him, but he will send them out permanently, not temporarily. And so this is the working of God. I, you, We read the rebellion of Pharaoh, but basically God is going to grind Pharaoh to powder. That by the end, he's going to make a choice to send them. Not to let them go temporarily and to come back, but to send them out permanently. Now, I know you're going to say, well, later he chases them. I understand that. But in that moment, he's going to thrust them out. In other words, they could not leave fast enough by the time this is done. There is a contrast, again, if you remember... When, uh, as I mentioned earlier in Exodus chapter 5, when Moses came the first time to Pharaoh, you remember when Moses said, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. You remember what Pharaoh said in Exodus 5 verse 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And now we see in chapter 11 verse 1, the Bible says, Pharaoh is not just going to let the people go. He is going to thrust them out altogether. And so Pharaoh stood in such defiance against God that by the time God is done with Pharaoh, it will be Pharaoh himself who will be glad to see them go. If you uh, turn with me in uh, Psalm, Psalm 78 uh, gives us a, a little uh, summary of what happened here in Egypt. Uh, several Psalms mention that. We spent some time also in Psalm 105. But notice with me Psalm 78 and verse 51. The Bible says that God smote, and He smote all the firstborn in Egypt, notice, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Him. The chief of their strength. Um, 
If you look at the plagues, you think about this, this last plague, the plague of the firstborn that God is going to send. It's going to be the chief of their strength. Their strength is going to be sapped out of them. Now I want us to think here for just a moment as we look back in the plagues. I've already mentioned them, but the water was turned to blood. There was no water throughout the land. The Egyptians were digging in the ground around the river looking for fresh water. Frogs came and covered the land and then they, their carcasses were put into heaps. And so there's the stench of dead carcasses everywhere. And then the dust in Egypt becomes lysed upon the bodies of men and uh, they uh, would be defiled. Their bodies would be defiled through that. And then the plagues gets more severe and severe. Then there's the swarm of flies which devour the flesh of men. The livestock dies which represents the wealth and the power of Egypt. And then God sends boils on the bodies of those who uh, were Egyptians. That uh, Something that was very painful uh, all throughout the land of Egypt. And then God sends a, a, a hail storm and fire that destroys the... The, the crops and the harvest that were, they were expecting that kills any animal that was outside and any servant that was outside as well. And then, uh, then God sends the locust and the locust basically devour anything left that the hail did not destroy. And, and then God sends a, a heavy darkness throughout the entire land of Egypt and, uh, and brings everything to a halt. And so we, we might think here that everything is gone. There, Egypt has, has nothing left. And not only is the land barren now, but uh, the people are discouraged. And then just at the end, God would take the firstborn, the chief of their strength. Think about it. Not only would there be no harvest, not only would there be uh, no uh, livestock left, but all the beauty of Egypt would disappear but then those next generations that would come would be completely destroyed. And so Egypt is going to be left in a complete state of confusion and barrenness and emptiness and death. It's the chief of their strength. And by the way, this would affect everybody. I think that when we read some of those plagues, we might see that maybe the Pharaoh did not um, suffer to the same degree that most Egyptians did. I would imagine that Pharaoh being the king would have uh, probably hired servants that would keep the frogs out and uh, keep his body clean and uh, that he would have all the food that he would need it and that those who would suffer the most would be those who would be in the kingdom of Egypt. But when you think about this last plague, those who lived in the palace were not one bit more secure than those who lived in the humblest of habitations throughout the land of Egypt. The firstborn would die without regard of wealth or possession or position in the land of Egypt. We continue in Exodus verse 2 of chapter 11. The Bible says here, Speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. Uh, now it's interesting here because uh, some people say, well, it seems like this is deceptive here. Uh, the word borrow, they're, they're not bringing it back. You know, Sometimes we, we, we say things that, uh, that we use the word borrow and we, we don't really use it in the correct way. You know, if, if you say, hey, can I, can I borrow some toothpaste? Well, it's not like you can give it back, right? Uh, you're borrowing, but you're using, and, and sometimes somebody will say, well, I'm not, you, can, you can have it. You don't have to borrow it. I don't want, once you use the toothpaste, I don't want it back. Uh, and so uh, sometimes we think about it, but the word borrow here uh, might seem uh, that the children of Israel were instructed to somehow deceive the Egyptians into giving them silver and gold. However, the word borrow is quite wide in application. The word borrow means to inquire, to request, to beg, to pray. It's a, it's a really general term. Uh, they would come and they would say, would you give us silver and gold? Now how that came about, I don't know. But the next verse tells us that the Lord, verse 3, that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now this would be significant. Why? Well, because when you read about uh, the descent, you know, Joseph and his brothers, when they came into the land... Uh, the, them as shepherds, as overseers of flocks, were despised by the Egyptians. But here God would 
give the children of Israel favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Now why, the question here is, why was this ordered of God? And so that's a good question. Why would God order this to be done here? Why would God tell Moses at this time, go tell the children of Israel to borrow, to ask the people for silver and gold, and God says, I'm going to give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians that they're going to give jewels of gold and jewels of silver. And so there's no doubt here uh, uh, we see what happens. But why would God order Moses to say that? Now some might say here that the children of Israel, well, they simply took what they deserved because for many years as slaves they, they did not get what they deserved. They were abused. And, and certainly that might be an uh, a earthly reason that might seem valid. Um, we may call that reparations for the suffering they've gone through. But I think there's a, a more appropriate uh, explanation. And so I, I do not think that God intended this, that God is going to give them silver because they've suffered all those years. I, I think there are two reasons that are given in the Scriptures themselves that tell us why God was do this. Uh, so let's first turn to Exodus chapter 3. You know, the Bible explains itself. That's why the Bible is so wonderful. Uh, we don't have to guess and wonder sometimes. Well, I wonder why God said to do that when the Bible already furnishes us the reason why He's going to do that. Notice that with me, Exodus chapter 3. If you go to the end of the chapter, verse 19. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. Now remember, God is speaking to Moses about his calling and using Moses to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. God tells Moses that Pharaoh's not going to listen. And he says, verse 20, And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. Uh, and so he prophesied about the plagues. But notice verse 21, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and um, ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. Now we see here that I think there's really two reasons as when we read about those verses. This is before anything happens and God speaks to Moses and says, look, I'm going to raise you up to go to Pharaoh. He's not going to listen to you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send signs and wonders and when I'm done with him, he's going to let you go. And when you leave, you're going to leave and at the same time as you leave, you're going to spoil the Egyptians. So one of the reasons for God instructing Moses later on to tell the children of Israel to go to the Egyptians and to borrow gold and silver is because it was a judgment upon the Egyptians. Now think about it. Thus far, everything that has been sent in the land of Egypt has not touched the gold or the silver of the Egyptians. It's destroyed everything else pretty much. And in the end, the firstborn of every household is going to die. But ultimately, the only thing that they would have left in the end would be their gold and their silver, which would be the only thing of value that they would have. And God tells Moses that when I'm done, you're going to spoil the Egyptians. And so really, this is a form of judgment upon the Egyptians. That God, by the end, He's going to take everything that they've trusted in away from them. But that's not the only reason why God instructed Moses to tell the children of Israel to do that. If you go back even further with me to Genesis chapter 15. This is amazing here. The Word of God is quite amazing. This, this Egyptian, uh, the, the journey into Egypt and their period of captivity and the redemption out of Egypt was prophesied before the book of Exodus even before God came to Moses and told him what would happen, God told this to Abraham, the great patriarch of the children of Israel. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, we'll just read a few verses here, but uh, notice in verse 13 he says, And he said unto Abram, 
Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Okay, well, that's Egypt, that's Exodus. Notice verse 14. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. So I want you to notice here that God says, I'm going to judge them, and then he says, and the children of Israel are going to leave with great substance. So guess what? The great substance that they leave with is connected to the judgment of God upon them. So the reason why God instructed Moses to tell the children of Israel to go to the Egyptians and to borrow or to ask of them their gold and the silver is because that was God's judgment upon them. But also I think we could say very safely based on those two passages that God tells Moses to do that because it would be the fulfillment of prophecy. That what God said would happen, happened. You know, this is confirmation again and again as we read the Word of God. We read in the book of Revelation and we know the end. And how are we certain of the end? Because God has already done that over and over and over and over again. He has said over and over, this is going to happen. And then we have been witnesses and have been able to see that all of these things have happened. And you say, well, what are the things that have not happened? Well, the things that have happened, where we have a witness, where we have a testimony of it, is a confirmation that God will again do what He said He will do. And faith that we need to have is in His Word and in God's faithfulness that His Word will not fail. And here, His Word has not failed. And so why did God tell Moses to do that? Well, to fulfill prophecy, but also to judge the Egyptians. In, uh, if you go back with me to Exodus 11, we notice in verse 3, as we continue, the Bible says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Moses obviously would be the one who would be used as a tool. You remember when God came to Moses, God told Moses, I'm going to deliver the people, I will bring them out, and I'm going to use you, Moses. So, so we understand this is uh, not Moses that should be praised and Moses that should be glorified, although God's Word tells us that he was faithful to carry out what God said to carry out. And so we recognize Moses' faithfulness and obedience to God. But the point is, the power in all of this is of God. Moses was incapable of doing all of those things, but God was, and God did. And God used Moses as an instrument. And as that instrument, the people saw Moses, and he became great in their eyes. And no doubt, as we think about him becoming great in their eyes, can you imagine maybe... In the mind of Pharaoh in Exodus 5 when he says, I know not the Lord, neither will I obey his voice and let Israel go. Do you think by now he has a good idea of who God is? And so the, mo- the reputation of Moses is, is great in the land. Uh, by the way, there is, we'll talk about this later. It's not mentioned in this passage, but I do believe that in part, the wonders, the things that God did in Egypt is why it was not just the children of Israel that left, it was also a uh, mixed multitude. So, there's probably a good portion of them, by the way, that, much of that mixed multitude is not going to end up being good later on. Uh, we see that, but the point is, there's nothing left in Egypt, and they've seen the power of God demonstrated, and Moses, the leader who stands as God's emissary, uh, for the power of God and, and a bunch of people are going to follow Moses out his reputation is going to be such in the land that some people are going to forsake the land of Egypt and to go into a wilderness it's interesting that people would make that decision to leave what would have been Egypt the, at the zenith of its power in the world to follow a God that they did not know just a short time before, and to follow that God and that Moses in a wilderness. 
How greater is God than all the gods of Egypt if you leave that land to go into the wilderness? Better is the wilderness with the God, Jehovah God, than the glories of Egypt with false gods. I'll take the wilderness and nothing in the land if it means the presence of God. And by the way, the children of Israel are going to know what that means. We'll talk about it. I, I know I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm excited about it. But there's going to be the kind of glory of God guiding them. Uh, there's going to be the manna from heaven. There's going to be uh, the water coming out of the rock. And God is going to provide for them in the wilderness. In a, in a place where there seems that there is nothing there. And yet God is going to show himself to the children of Israel. We come to verse 4, and Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservants that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And so there's going to be, in this final plague, there's going to be no respecter of persons. Uh, he mentions there's going to be the firstborn that sits on the throne. In the palace of Egypt, he's going to die. But also those who are the humblest, humblest of servants in the land of Egypt, those who grind the mill, who just basically that's their job. They walk around in the mill, which is the most mundane job, the lowest job that you could have in Egypt. They're going to lose their firstborn too. Not just of men, but even of beasts. He said, well, how, much, how many beasts are left? Well, there's not a whole lot, but whatever's left. You might say, well, why the firstborn? Well, based on the culture of Egypt, if you think about all the plagues thus far and all, the, all that was going on, do you know who would be the most protected people in all those plagues? The firstborn. The firstborn son of the Pharaoh. The firstborn son of all the servants. The firstborn son of every animal was always deemed as more valuable than all the others. They would be the most protected. If, if sometimes they would have maybe one of those bulls in Egypt that would be a representation of their God, they would often choose the firstborn. Not the second or the third. And so those would be the most protected in Egypt. And yet God says, probably the most protected class in Egypt of every class in society is going to die. No one's going to be spared. Verse 6, And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. When we come to verse 4, I just read this here just a moment ago, but really verse 4 is a continuation of Exodus chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. Notice Exodus 10, verse 20, And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, See my face no more, for in that day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. And Moses said, Thou hast uh, spoken well. I will see thy face again no more. Jump down to chapter 11, verse 4. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. This is a continuation. The reason why I say that is because thus far, before we get to chapter 10, every time that Moses leaves the presence of Pharaoh, the Bible mentions that he leaves the presence of Pharaoh. But it's not mentioned at the end of chapter 10. It is mentioned, however, at the end of chapter uh, of uh, verse 8 of chapter 11. The Bible uh, has had a pattern thus far. When Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh, he goes into his presence. The Bible notes that. And also the Bible notes when he leaves the presence of Pharaoh. But at the end of chapter 10, it does not say he left, he left the presence of Pharaoh. And so we continue that again. There is both a, uh, chapter 11 is a summary, but also a continuation of uh, uh, the end of chapter 10. And so we notice in verse 7 again, And against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. 
and all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. And so that is noted here when, Pharaoh, when Moses left the presence of Pharaoh in anger. What we note here is that God is going to put a difference between the Egyptians and the children of Israel. God has mentioned that on a number of occasions thus far. But lest we forget... We must remember that the ten plagues, one of the reasons that God sent the plagues was not just to judge the Egyptians and the Pharaoh, but it was also to try and to judge the children of Israel. Now, hold your place here in Exodus chapter 11 and turn with me to, first of all, the book of Leviticus in chapter 17. Leviticus Chapter 17. Now Leviticus happens, if you think about where would you put the book of Leviticus, you'd put it right in the book of Exodus. Okay, happens there. Um, a lot going on in Leviticus as far as the timeline. You think of the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of those are during the time before the children of Israel go into the promised land. And so all those are pre-entrance to the promised land. And in many of those, he looks back to their time in Egypt. And here in Leviticus chapter 17, notice with me, verse 7. And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, after whom they, had, they have gone a-whoring, this shall be a statue forever unto them throughout their generations. Now notice here uh, uh, the instruction that God gives to Moses to pass on to the children of Israel is that they are no more to offer sacrifices unto devils. Well, who is he talking to? The children of Israel. That means that while they were in Egypt, they had offered sacrifices unto devils. And notice at the beginning of verse 7, they shall no more offer sacrifices unto devils. If you turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. So the book of Joshua, we know that uh, God leads them into the conquering of the land. Uh, by the way, by the time of Joshua's death, there's still much land to be to be conquered, they, they became okay with living in the midst of their enemies. And we know that later they would become corrupted by them. But notice Joshua 24. Uh, notice with me verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood. And in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. Now, obviously, we know why the flood happened. The flood happened because Exodus chapter 6 says that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, and God judged the world with the flood. But it was not only then, but God also mentions here through Joshua, He says, serve God in sincerity and truth, and don't be like your fathers who, um, um, who served false gods in Egypt. Put them away. So the children of Israel had gotten so corrupt that they were serving the gods of the Egyptians and worshiping them. Turn to one more. That is the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 20. Right before the book of Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 20, if you turn there with me, we find a 
a pretty thorough commentary as to God's dealing with the children of Israel in their redemption of Egyptian bondage. Uh, by the way, when we read through those plagues, isn't it interesting that we have not seen at any moment when God told the children of Israel, put away your gods? We don't find that. Now, it becomes evident to us because we get to Exodus 20 and they receive the commandment and when Moses delays to come down from the mountain, they, they carve a golden calf. Well, where did they get that? They got that from Egypt. But notice with me Ezekiel chapter 20. Let's begin reading in verse 6, verse 5. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day when I chose Israel and lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God. So God says, I, I, I came, I made myself known to them. Well, why would God have to make Himself known to them? Well, it is apparent that they had forgotten God. That they were worshiping the, the gods of, of the Egyptians. Verse 6, And in the day that I lifted up mine hand, verse 6, unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espoused for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? God, he says, I, I, I told them, cast away every man the abominations. Verse 8, but they rebelled against me. Well, who, who, who were the rebellious ones? Well, the, the children of Israel. That's what he's, who he's talking to. They rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man. Now notice here, some did, but not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. When did God pour out His fury? He says here on them, in the land of Egypt. You see, the judgments in Egypt was not just to be a judgment upon the Egyptians. It was also to judge the children of Israel. Some plagues, God said, I'm going to put a division between the Egyptians and the children of Israel. But they experienced many of them. Verse 9. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should, be, but that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. You know, get notice again verse 9. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were. And so God says, I, I'm tired of your pollution. You need to do away with those abominations. And I, I judged you in the land of Egypt. And so what we learn from that is that Israel worshipped the idols in Egypt. And God, we see here in Ezekiel 20, God reproved them for their worship of idols. And God judged the children of Israel by the plagues in Egypt. And also that God's judgment here Notice, was not based upon the worthiness of the Hebrews. You see, God judged them too. They were worshipers of idols. And so notice when we read that God brought them out. God brought them out not because they were worthy. They were not. But by the way, God brings us out of the bondage of sin not because we are worthy. We are sinners and enemies of God. We were sinners, enemies of God. But we have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because we are worthy, 
but because God wants to redeem us. If we go back to Exodus 11, verse 8, And all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out and all the people that follow thee. And after that I will, uh, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. Now, this is the first time we really see uh, Moses angry. I, I don't remember thus far as we've studied Moses being angry. We find early on maybe uh, Moses lacking confidence in, in himself and his ability, asking God to find a substitute or to find a mouthpiece. But Moses has done everything that God has, has told him to do. And so I'm wondering here because uh, Moses, I want you to think here, he, he leaves. This is going to be the last time he's in the presence of Pharaoh. He just told Pharaoh that the next time you speak to me, you're not going to directly speak to me. You're going to send messengers to me and they're going to bow themselves before me and they're going to say, get everything out of here. And Moses, as he delivers this really final message to Pharaoh, he leaves in anger. Now we say, Moses was angry at what? Well, I think as we look at the nine plagues that have happened and all the meetings between Moses and Pharaoh, how, remember, time and time again, when Moses came to Pharaoh, and even at times, Pharaoh says, okay, let the people go, and then he, he went back on his word. It must have been a frustrating time for Moses. And it seems now that Moses gets to the end, he says, this is it, this is the last plague. And when this is done, God has told Moses, he's going to thrust you out. It's as if Moses had maybe some hope that he wouldn't come to this. Uh, that it, would get, it wouldn't get this bad. That, that God would have already shown Himself true and powerful to the Egyptians that the Pharaoh would, would have to say, God, I, I will humble myself before you. I, I think Moses is angry because after God has shown Himself, Pharaoh still refuses to humble himself before God. We may use this word a little too much. It's unbelievable. But maybe Moses here thinks this is unbelievable. What else did God have to do? If this section in God's Word, from Exodus chapter 5 through Exodus chapter 12, doesn't reveal how rebellious and depraved man can get, I don't know what else can. That God has shown miracles and signs and wonders and the people still will not believe. Isn't it interesting that that's really the pattern throughout the scriptures? That those who lived the closest to the creation denied worship of that creator but worshiped the creature more than the creator? Isn't it interesting that even in the New Testament when Jesus Christ comes in, on the scene and He does miracles and, and signs and wonders as much as raising Lazarus from the dead in front of a religious group that rejected Him and we could say, what else? What other sign does God need to show uh, to the children of Israel to show that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah? I know there are many people who claimed to be Messiahs during, uh, around the time of Christ, but no one did the miracles that He did. No one proved himself like Jesus proved himself. Uh, but even the Old Testament had prophesied his suffering, his death on the cross, his crucifixion, the, the nails that would pierce his hand, the side that would be pierced. But the Bible also prophesied his resurrection. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You remember what the religious authority says to the Roman soldier. You're going to have to lie about this. The miracles before their eyes. But yet they had to claim and they had to tell the soldiers and to pay the soldiers to, to lie about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And until this day, people still believe that the disciples lied about the resurrection. But it's not only that, and we might say, well, what else could Jesus do? It, it shows the wickedness of the heart of man that persistently stands even though there are signs and wonders and mighty things that took place that people would still deny that Jesus would be the Messiah. 
And then Jesus ascended to heaven and he told his followers to wait for the promise of the Father, which would be the Holy Spirit coming down. And the Holy Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And you have the miracle of the speaking in tongues with the people that were from different countries gathered for the Feast of Pentecost were hearing the wonderful works of God in their own languages at the same time. The miracle that took place and God bore witness uh, of the apostles by signs and wonders. There were miracles that were done. You remember uh, when uh, Peter and John were by the beautiful gate and they healed the crippled man. And then the people got all uh, agitated and the religious uh, crowd uh, uh, accused Peter and John of, uh, of uh, sowing discord and of doing bad things. And, and by the way, they were, they were okay with the miracles and the signs. But you remember what they said. They said, now you cannot... Teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. So we might get to the place where what else is going to convince them? Do you remember what Jesus told Thomas? We say Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas. Why? Well, you remember the disciples had seen Jesus Christ in the upper room and they told Thomas, you missed it. Jesus was there. Remember what Thomas said? I'm not going to believe it until I can thrust my hand in his side and touch him. Well, finally Jesus appeared and Thomas was there that time and Thomas had the opportunity. And, and, and so Thomas was a, a witness of a miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus told him? He says, you know, you have seen, but blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. You know, we, we should not be bothered. We should not be bothered that there are no signs and wonders in our day. Whoa, 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 where's, a, where's the miracle? And if God could just send us a sign, God has given us His Word. God has shown signs uh, throughout the history of the world, whether it was in Egypt or during the time of Christ or during the time of the foundation of the church in the apostles, that God showed Himself strong, that God showed Himself real. And is it, isn't it interesting that it was during those same exact moments when there were signs and wonders and miracles that we might think that that would be when the most people would believe and that did not happen? Why? Because of the heart of man. The heart of man is so wicked and rebellious. Jesus gives us the answer when he spoke to Nicodemus and he said, you must be born again. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might believe. But then he explains to Nicodemus why they will not believe. They will not believe. Turn with me to John chapter 3. In John, we know early on that Jesus Christ is referred to as the light that has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. Notice. John 3.18 He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so we might pause here and we might say, well, we believe on the name of the Son of God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave after three days. And so we, we believe on that. And what mighty signs and wonders were done. And so those who believe are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. And so we might think here, wow, wow, wow what great power of the resurrection. Why do people not believe? Well, verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Who is that light? That's Jesus. Now why would they not accept that light? And men... Love darkness rather than light. Now, now, why would they love darkness rather than light? Why, why would they reject? 
when they saw plainly that He was the Messiah, what, what uh, underlies the reason? What's the reason for Pharaoh? What's the reason for the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the children of Israel for rejecting Christ? What's the reason for the, the Sanhedrin council and the people during the time of the apostles for rejecting Christ? Why do they love darkness rather than light? The Bible says, because their deeds were evil. That's why they love darkness rather than light. Notice verse 20. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So underlying why would Pharaoh reject the light that he has received from God? I mean, there's no denying that this is the power of God. He has admitted it himself thus far. But there's a difference between admission and submission. Between knowing what is true and submitting to the truth. Pharaoh saw the light, but he, he loves darkness rather than light. He loved the obscurity of the false gods who were silent and quiet over the light that he knew and he received from God. But why? Because his deeds were evil. At its core, Pharaoh, like all men, was a wicked sinner. And when light comes in, it reproves sin. You see, Pharaoh... He can't deny at this point that God exists. He can't deny the power of God. He can't even deny the light. But he loves something more. He loves his sin more. He loves his rebellion more. He loves deifying himself putting himself in the place of God thinking that God answers to him and not that he answers to God you see there's a very great difference between admitting and submitting you know many people believe in God you know the devils even they believe God What's their problem? They will not submit to Him. So how, how would you leave after all of this if you were Moses? <laughs> you, we might sense, you've had your opportunity. As I've mentioned, I will mention this again because it's important here to repeat we look at those plagues and we might concentrate on the judgment of God, but I think what we should concentrate on is the mercy of God. How much merciful can God be? Because any judgment that God sends the way of Pharaoh that does not stamp out his life is mercy. Oh, the water turning the blood, that's terrible. But that was merciful. Oh, the frogs everywhere. That, that, that's terrible and annoying, but that was merciful. The lice on the skin, very annoying, very irritating, but merciful. The swarms of flies everywhere. Oh, uh, terrible, but, but merciful. The livestock and the wealth being gone. Oh, that's terrible, but that's merciful. And the boils upon the body and the intense suffering that they would go through, uh, that, uh, that's terrible. But that is God being merciful. And the hail destroying all the vegetation. And it seemed that all life is gone except the life of the Egyptians. God is, is merciful. And then the locust just finally uh, d d takes away everything that's left. And yet the Egyptians, they, they still have their lives. And Pharaoh still has his life. He still walks around with the breath that God gives him. God is merciful. 
then God shuts all the lights off and there's darkness everywhere. And although that was so terrible, it shows us that God was merciful. If you come away with those plagues and all you can think about is the judgment of God and you, and you, you cannot see the mercy of God, then you've missed it. You've missed how gracious and patient and merciful God is toward men. Particularly rebellious men. And so Moses has to leave in anger. How else would you leave? You're not going to walk out of that palace happy? Skipping around? You have to leave in anger. You, you look all around us and those who reject God and who reject Jesus Christ. We, we, we might think, well, uh, uh, we, uh, I don't understand. Yeah, we do understand. We do understand the heart of man. There's nothing, nothing new under the sun. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Again, those are, are summary statements. I want you to notice three things in this summary. First, we see the rebellious opposition of Pharaoh once again. Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you. Rebellion. He's going to oppose himself. Then we see the faithfulness of Moses and Aaron. Verse 10, And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. They were faithful all throughout. And notice, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's the judgment of God. So we see a, a summary of all those nine plagues. The rebellion of Pharaoh, the faithfulness of Moses and Aaron, and God's judgment on Pharaoh by hardening his heart. Why? Because of his rebellion that he would not let the people go. He would not hearken unto the what? Well, you remember Moses was, was the messenger of God. We, we, we could say here that, that Pharaoh at no point did he see God. And by the way, the Bible says no man hath seen God at any time. And so Pharaoh has not physically seen God. He, he's physically seen his idols that he has worshipped all throughout the land of Egypt. But he has never seen God. So what did he not hearken to? He, he did not hearken to what? The word of God. You see, I believe that this is true across the board, whether it is in the unregenerate world, that God will, will judge those who refuse to hearken to His Word. But I think God also can chasten His people who also refuse to hearken to His Word. Now the call on, on us may not be, is not a call unto salvation, but it's a call of obedience and submission to God. You see, in the midst of Pharaoh's rebellious opposition in not hearkening to God's word, and God judging Pharaoh by hardening his heart, we find right in the middle how Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. Now, they were not the authors of the wonders, but they were the instruments through which the wonders were wrought. So here is what we're left with. In the midst of a, a world that does not hearken to the word, and in the midst of a world that God judges, we must be found faithful. Just like Moses and Aaron. What, what, what did they do over and over again? It's very simple. Moses, this is what God says. Would you do what God says? 
at least if we take out the three times where the plague came without warning, it's been six times that Moses had just said to, uh, to Pharaoh again and again, here's what God says. Will you listen to him? And so for us today, so what's our responsibility? It's very simple. Deliver God's message. But wait a minute. What if they will not listen? Keep delivering God's message. What if, what if it gets to the point where God just judges everybody? Keep giving God's message. Let's not be concerned with what belongs to God. Let's just be concerned with being the instruments that God wants to use in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we ought to shine as lights in the world.